Well, tonight we are beginning a, a short series in the book of Jude. And, uh, and so uh, we are going to read the entire book of Jude, which is only a single chapter. It spans 24 verses. And then we will spend the next uh, few weeks going through that chapter and, uh, and uh, um, well, expounding upon it. So exploring what Jude has for us. So I'll, uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Again, I'll be reading the entire book of Jude. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of, of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your, uh, at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten, thousand, uh, ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So what might you say um, the, the most neglected book of the Bible is? Now you can't say Jude because I just read that for you. But, but you might point to the books of the minor prophets, right? Has anyone read Nahum recently, right? Uh, let alone could, can actually tell you what it's about, all right? It's, um, so in short, Nahum is what happens after Jonah and the Ninevites uh, actually, uh, they, they go perverse again and they eventually uh, are uh, prophesied for destruction. So, <laughs> so uh, but, uh, and, and, and as certainly we would find neglected books amongst the, the 12 prophets in the, 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 in, in the Old Testament, but one of the most neglected books would have to be the book of Jude. It is so short, we can even hardly call it a book, all right? It's, uh, it's only one chapter. It doesn't even have a one with a colon and a verse number. At, just ver- it's just verses, right? Uh, it, it, and it's true that it's very short, but as soon as you read Jude, as we have, you are, you are just blasted with Old Testament references, strong warnings, confusing uh, discussions about angelic conflicts and allusions to things concerning Enoch that seem to be not found in our Bibles. So Jude can be an immensely confusing book, and and I will say, you know, it's we have this we have this understanding about, um, you know, when we're trying to understand difficult things, you want to take what is clear to help you understand what's unclear. And if, if people come to you quoting obscure passages from the book of Jude to, 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 as the grounding for specific arguments, you would do well to have alarm bells going off, right? Whenever someone is rooting a controversial opinion in an obscure part of the Bible, you should always have alarm bells going off and say, okay, well, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? <laughs> what, 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 how can we find something that has some clear statements uh, about this? But the, book of, the, but the book of Jude is useful. It is beneficial for God's people, not only because we know it's inspired scripture. But honestly, it's, I, I compare the book of Jude to eating. Um, I, I think of uh, when Les and I lived in, um, in, in Orlando, uh, and we were, I was in seminary. Uh, we would occasionally go over to the Cheesecake Factory, and very occasionally because we didn't have much money. And so, and so, but we would go there, and one of the things we would do is we would uh, get one slice of their like nine-layer chocolate cake thing that they have there, and we would eat that for like two days. <laughs> so one slice of, between the two of us for two days. <laughs> and so um, because you just couldn't eat all that, but it was just so every bite was so densely layered with chocolate. Now you're just like, I just want dessert now. But... Um, but there's so much just, you know, cocoa, fat, <laughs> calories that, that are packed in every bite. And likewise, Jude is jam-packed with biblical theology that it will take us several weeks to, to unpack all that's in there. 
And even then, we probably won't get it all. And so tonight, we're just going to do a flyover of the letter of Jude uh, and, um, and, and get its basic structure uh, down and a basic understanding of it. And, and we can break it uh, really largely into two chunks. Is the first four verses, which gives us the setting or the context of the letter of Jude. And then secondly, the instruction that Jude has for the church which includes basically uh, pictures of warning, but also instructions of help. And also he closes with that wondrous doxology. And so we'll begin with the context of Jude in verses 1 through 4. And, and we begin with its author. Now, the titles of books of the Bible can be a bit confusing at times. How did we get this title? Where did it come from? And, uh, and you know, and Paul, in his letters... The titles of his letters that we have in our scriptures, they correspond to the, the, the geographic location, uh, l- uh, largely, of, the, of the, the, uh, the church that he's writing to. So, for instance, uh, you know, Romans goes to the Christians at Rome, and Galatia, the Christians at, Gal- at Galatia, um, and, and so on. Cor- you know, Corinthians uh, and Philippians, Colossians. Uh, but also, um, the Apostle Paul has letters... Um, that have individual names attached to them. So Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And, uh, and so, uh, and these are, you know, what we call the pastorals, where he is writing to someone specifically. But in, the, in what we call the historical or the, the general epistles, which is basically Hebrews through Jude, uh, there's, it, 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 it's a different thing going on. Uh, and largely, with the exception of Hebrews, uh, the letters are identified by who wrote them, not to whom they are addressed. And so, so you have First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and of course Jude. Uh, Hebrews is just its own story, right? So it, it is. So um, we're in that, so we are told that this letter is written by Jude. And Jude identifies himself in two ways. He says that he is the servant of Jesus Christ and he is the brother of James. Now, as far as we can tell, this is not the James as in James the Apostle, James the brother of John, the sons of thunder. Uh, this, uh, rather, uh, we know that in Galatians 1.19... Uh, James is identified, uh, it's a different James, who is identified as the Lord's brother. That is one of the siblings that Joseph and Mary had after Jesus was born. Acts 1.14 records the early church uh, gathering together in prayer prior to Pentecost. And this group of disciples included Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. And this would be presumably uh, uh, James and another brother. Uh, Paul noted uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians that he had taken with him the Lord's brothers on at least one of his missionary journeys. And in summary, the, the, the author's letter is, uh, is one of the brothers of Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph. Uh, so, this, so Jesus had two, it is humanity, had two earthly brothers, uh, James and Jude. Now, I, I, I point this out because it does matter because there are those who deny that Jesus had any siblings, uh, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and so in order to uphold the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity, 
that they have to deny what is actually fairly plain in teaching in Scripture and reinterpret those passages to say, well, every time it says the Lord's brothers, it means general brothers, like general brothers and sisters, like friends. And, but, but the testimony is clear that during Christ's ministry, Jesus had a earthly family who did not believe him and who at times thought he was crazy. All right, they thought he'd gone mad. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, they became followers of Christ. And we note here the reverence that Jude has because he does not mention his earthly relation to Jesus, but identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Finally, this also speaks to one of the reasons this letter is included in the New Testament. One of the criteria for determining whether a letter was Scripture is because how do we, you know, one of the big questions is how do we get our Bible? How do we get the New Testament? And one of the big questions that is asked is, well, who wrote it? Was it an apostle? Was it someone who was close to Jesus? Was it was an eyewitness? What, who wrote this? And there, now there are quite a few liberal, uh, liberal scholars who, um, who argue that Jude is what they call pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha is basically, it's that pseuda, pseudo and epigraph uh, combined together in a very long word that people like to say to feel fancy. Um, but it basically means uh, false writing. It means it's the writing that's basically somebody wrote it claiming to be Jude, um, but it wasn't really them. It wasn't really him. But, um, it's, but it's interesting, though, because the, the evidence they cite is not manuscript evidence. They don't say, well, the only copies we have of Jude uh, originated 300 years after the time. You know, they, don't, they don't say that. The arguments they give are saying, well, his Greek's too fancy. His Greek's too fancy, and his theology is too developed. To be able to say that, you know, to have that kind of doxology and, uh, and, and, and I've always found when I was, one of the things I do appreciate about, uh, um, about my seminary education is that uh, my, our professors would often make us go read the arguments from the other side. And so we'd have to go read liberal scholarship on, on what they were arguing and saying. And so we have to go read these things. And, um, and, and, and this type of reasoning is just all over the place in liberal scholarship. And, and, and the key problem with it is that is it's almost entirely subjective, right? It'd be one thing. There's, there was a movie. Um, no, no, it was a TV show. Was it Downton Abbey? I, th- I think it was a show, TV show, Downton Abbey. And they referred to, it, they, it, was around ni- it was around 1914-ish and stuff like that. And there's this war breaking out, you know? And one of the characters referred to it as World War I. Now think about that, <laughs> right? They didn't know it was World War I at the time. It was the war to end all wars. No one ever thought it could happen again. And so, uh, and so now, if Jude had done that, right, that would be one thing. Uh, but that's not what it is. They, they're citing reasons of basically, again, the, the, the Greek is too, too fancy. The theology is too complex, which is so subjective. He refers to the faith once delivered to all the saints. And that just seems to be too much. For liberal scholars to say this is the genuine article. Um, but the early church from the earliest days has said this is, uh, this is written by Jude. Uh, this is considered Christian scripture. And we have no reason to doubt that. Uh, it's, it was probably written. It was definitely written by a, a, a brother of uh, an earthly brother of Jesus. Uh, probably around the time of uh, between 80, 50 to 80, 65. 
We don't really know exactly, but in that 15-year period. And that's, and you note that is kind of towards the end of Paul's ministry. He was uh, executed um, by Nero um, in, in early 60s. Um, and, so, uh, and so that's kind of the time. So somewhere in that time where the heat is turning up on the Christian church, uh, we see, uh, we see uh, Jude's letter come about. All right, and this brings us to the audience. Who is Jude writing to? And interestingly, Jude in verse 2 indicates that he's not writing to the churches of a particular geographic region. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter, he says, you know, to the, to the Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia, like he goes through all these different places. He doesn't do that. All right, so even the book of Revelation is, identifies seven churches in these regions. He doesn't do that either. He simply says, uh, to all those called, beloved in God, uh, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And so he is simply writing to the church. And and we don't know where exactly he was writing to. But this is a letter for the whole church. And as we shall see, it is a letter for the church in every age. Because the teaching of Jude in this letter is always relevant until the Lord Jesus returns. Now... Uh, This brings us to the issue in verses 3 and 4. And Jude says uh, that he he wanted originally to write a nice letter, kind of of like maybe the Apostle Paul, and and talk about the common salvation they have as Christians, and to talk about Jesus and the gospel, uh, presumably. But something more urgent has come up. Something, a problem has arisen that he says, I I can't do that, I've got to address this. And, and so r- rather than instructing them in their common salvation, he says, I need to contend for the faith. In short, he says, false teachers have arisen and they are leading God's people astray. And he goes on to significant detail about what this uh, looks like by citing pictures from the Old Testament. It seems that false teachers were teaching that the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ uh, frees believers from moral constraints and from an obligation to holiness. This, he says, is a denial of the faith. Jude's approach here in this letter is, is like that of an Old Testament prophet. He brings sharp denunciations of sin and the perversion of God's word and God's grace. And in a society like ours that is obsessed with the sensual, with the gratification of the flesh, that despises things like self-control, self-restraint, and holiness, we would do well to heed Jude's message. And so this brings us to the body of the letter, and which are essentially warnings and commands for the church today. And in verses 5 through 16, which is the very core of the, of the letter, we are given pictures of warning. Jude layers his letter with Old Testament references, applying them to the present situation. He makes references to the Exodus, wilderness wanderings, uh, the angels, to Sodom and Gomorrah. He makes specific references to individuals like Cain and Balaam and Korah. You've got to know your Old Testament to understand what Jude's talking about here. Over the coming weeks, we're going to delve into each of these uh, that, that he mentions, but we can go ahead and make a few observations about Jude and what he writes here. Uh, Jude believes uh, clearly that the Old Testament is Scripture, 
And he refers to it in the failures of the Israelites as a kind of holy history of example that we can learn from and be warned uh, away from sin by. This is perfectly in line with the, with what the, the use of the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul, uh, explicitly states in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says one of the explicit uses of the Old Testament is as a warning to Christians to, to stay true to the faith and to obey the Lord. Jude also interprets the Old Testament in light of the revelation of Christ, as seen in verse 5. And, this is, and you'll just blow right past this until you stop and you look. What did he just say? Jesus is the one who saved Israel from Egypt and destroyed those who did not believe. So, so Jude has something to say about how the Old Testament relates to Jesus Christ. Probably the most confusing part of Jude's letter is his use of what is called Jewish Apocrypha. The Jewish Apocrypha are the Jewish writings that occurred after the close of the Old Testament canon. Uh, so, for instance, uh, around this time of year, uh, well, next month, uh, uh, um, Jewish people will celebrate Hanukkah. Right? Well, where do you find Hanukkah? I don't see, I see Purim in, in the book of Esther, right? But I don't, I don't see a Hanukkah in our, in our Old Testament. That's because Hanukkah is found in the Maccabees, which is another, um, a, another writing, which is about the Jewish revolt uh, into, during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's, in, it's, in, it's under Judas Maccabee that, that, the, that the Israelites um, or that the Jews uh, came about to celebrate Hanukkah, right? So that it's in that writing. Well, likewise, there is a book called First Enoch in 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 that uh, that corpus, and so uh, and so it is it is that letter uh, that that Jude cites in verses fourteen and fifteen. He quotes from it. And now, um, Jude's use of Enoch is does not mean it's not a definitive argument to say that we ought to expand. Our understanding of Old Testament scripture. Uh, we don't have time tonight to go into the reasons for uh, the closing of the Old Testament canon, but they are many. Uh, but uh, but uh, what, we, what we will say is that there were helpful things that, are, that were written outside of the Old Testament and New Testament that, uh, that, that, that the authors of scripture felt like they could make use of to establish their points. And so we remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul was of the habit of citing pagan poets, whether he was addressing uh, pagans at the Areopagus on Mars Hill or whether he was writing a, a, church, a, a, a letter in the pastorals. So, um, uh, you know, he, he makes a, a very, um, um, uh, he makes a harsh remark about Cretans in, in the book of Titus. So, uh, and so simply because Paul is citing uh, pagan poets doesn't mean that he believes their scripture. And likewise, we don't need to assume that Jude is doing the same. But it is instructive to us uh, that, uh, that Jude's antidote for false teaching in the church is first to turn to the scriptures, which is at that time would simply have just been the Old Testament. Um, they didn't have the Bibles you know, bound together, uh, even though you had copies of the Gospels and Paul's letters were all floating around the church at the time. Uh, and and uh, so first to turn to the scriptures, but then also to be able to make use of Jewish apocryphal literature as warranted. Uh, 
And so this, and he may be writing to a Jewish audience of, of, of Christian Jews who had been converted. And maybe that's why he cites it, because it's familiar to them. But this is actually a helpful approach for us as well. When confronting false teaching in the church, we ought to first turn to the Old Testament and the New Testament. We ought to turn to our scriptures that have been handed to us by God. And by God's goodness, we also have access to a wealth of Christian writing outside of the Old Testament and the New Testament that can aid us in recovering the truth and discerning error. And so it's, it's, like, it's like with students in Sunday school. I tell them, okay, when you're looking at your study Bible, right, the inerrant part of the Bible is in that main box, the scripture part, right? And then you go to the cross-references, because that gets you more scripture, which is also infallible. And then once, and then once you get, get, get there, get done there, then you look at the study notes, which are not infallible, but helpful. They're not God's word, but they help us understand. And so, uh, and so, this, so Jude actually gives us a wonderful, instructive path for interpreting uh, the, uh, not only in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but also for, for responding to error and false teaching in the church. And so, and, and, uh, but we also can make use of the literature of unbelievers that at times will convey, even unwittingly, accidentally, the truth of God that shines through in a fallen world uh, and, so, uh, and so, for instance, one of my uh, favorite non-Christians to quote uh, is, you know, is, is Chris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, or sometimes I'll like to quote Bart Ehrman, uh, who's, who is definitely an unbeliever, but who also, uh, who, uh, who also, he'll try to make you not a Christian, but he also will admit that there are no manuscript differences between the copies of the manuscripts we have that threaten any major Christian doctrine. He's honest enough to admit that, and I love quoting non-Christians, you know, <laughs> saying like, hey, look at the truth here, all right? So, uh, so Jude provides us a great way of, of interacting with our Old Testament and making it helpful and relevant and, and, and helping us to comprehend the Word of God and to discern truth from error today. And finally, uh, Jude brings a calling to the church uh, to, to action. Well, not finally, almost finally. Uh, but Jude reminds the church in verses 17 to 23 of the predictions that were given by the Spirit to the apostles that specifically warned that false teachers would be coming to their midst. The apostle Paul said, when I go, there's going to be wolves that will rise up among you. He warned the Ephesian elders, watch out, they're coming. And so there's no reason to be surprised when we find false teachers, when we find wolves in the midst of the sheep. They, as Jude said, they snuck in. They, they deceived others. They talked the language. They used the biblical and theological language, but then they redefined it in order to appeal to the flesh. Always be suspicious of, this, of, this, of the Christian teacher who affirms everything you love. And you never feel confronted. You never feel convicted. You always just feel affirmed and I'm great and all my desires are wonderful and I just need to pursue everything, you know. It's just like if, if it's Joel Osteen, you know, just you're great and wonderful and awesome and just go, you know, you do you and, and get wealth and prosperity. That's a problem. So Jude's call upon the church 
is one of vigilance, to be sure. But it also is one that builds up the church in faith, he says. It involves a commitment to prayer. There is a holy guarding of one another in love as we wait for the mercy of Christ to be made full in the kingdom of glory. In the meantime, Jude calls us not to break the bruised reed, to be gentle with those who doubt and struggle, to save those who are in the danger of the fires of judgment through gospel truth, and to show mercy without compromising our holiness. In other words, Jude calls for a church that is very involved in the lives of its membership. And this might get a lot of pushback, especially in Western churches. What you messing around in my business for? Right? I remember hearing a pastor in Kenya who... Uh, um, who uh, he, he came up and uh, somebody had donated a car to the church and he uh, and he uh, and somebody another uh, another elder or member of the church saw it and they said you bought a new, you bought a new car without telling me first that's how involved <laughs> they were <laughs> in their lives <laughs> I'm not advocating you all inform me of your auto purchases okay I'm not I don't 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 tell me I don't really I don't need to know Right, um, but uh, but this the but the picture that he gives us may be a bit uncomfortable for us today. But you think about the people who mean the most to you, who bless you the most, who push you to be more godly and with grace, are usually the people who have they they they're up in your business a bit. They've got some say in your life. And that is a picture of the church that we need to remember. But finally, Jude does close with, a, uh, with what we can call glorious hope in verse 24. Jude's letter is one of warning, but it is one that is hopeful and centered on grace in Jesus Christ. For as his glorious doxology notes, it is God who is able to keep us from stumbling over all the obstacles that the false teachers are putting before us in the church. And so while Jude, notice Jude calls for practical, personal, individual action in the church. But he also knows the truth that while we may make our plans, it is the Lord who directs our steps. It is the Lord who does it through us and in us. It is this God who will steady our stumbling, stumbling feet and keep us on the path until all until the day we enter into his presence with glory and great joy and all of this is through Jesus Christ our lord so at, at first glance jude's letter may be as dense and confusing as it is short but we live in a in confusing times and jude may surprisingly bring us a bit of clarity as he interweaves the scriptures into his prophetic warnings, calling the church to perseverance, calling the church to discernment. And so in view of this, let us rejoice that we do have indeed a faithful Savior. We have the truth of God. And because we do, we can discern what is true and false. We can, by the Spirit, walk in holiness and help one another until we all enter his glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do bless your people. You bless us in your goodness and love. 
You bless us, Father, even in the midst with uh, much false teaching that is coming at us, Lord. It's coming from in the church, it's coming outside the church, Lord, and we pray for the, uh, for the purity of the church. Father, that you would purify your church, that you would remove the wolves from its midst, that you would uh, convict of us of uh, the ways that we have given into the flesh, uh, ways that we have perhaps uh, perverted your grace to justify sinful desires. We pray, Lord, that we would be even more uh, lovingly and graciously involved in one another's lives for the sake of the perseverance of the faith. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and help your church. Father, we need your help. We need reformation. We need purification. We need glorification. We thank you for your spirit that inhabits your church, that seals the gospel promises to us, assures us that the work that you have begun, you will indeed complete. And we are confident and hopeful, and we rejoice in that truth. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. All right.